Black Project Gaming and the Night at the Opera subreddit community proudly present Psychotic Operas, collected fictions inspired by Delta Green, the role-playing game. Tonight we bring you tales of operations gone wrong, agents gone mad, and forbidden knowledge better left forgotten. These stories contain elements of suspense, horror, extreme violence, and other mature content. Listener discretion is advised. In October 2019, Jake Cook of the Green Box Podcast hosted a new contest on the Night at the Opera subreddit. The contest solicited submissions of micromedia in a variety of forms. Microfiction stories, audio recordings, short videos, art, photographs, essentially anything that took place in the Delta Green universe and took less than 10 minutes to consume. The rules were simple. Entry was open to everyone over the age of 18. There were no limits on how many entries could be submitted, and there was no limit on not safe for work content. Submissions closed on December 31st, and the Night at the Opera community spent the next two weeks voting for their favorite entry, and the content most able to be used in a Delta Green game. Winners were announced on January 15th, and the short story entries were subsequently collected in a single document. In an attempt to promote more Delta Green fan content, the Black Project Gaming crew, with the explicit permission of the authors, decided to feature some of those stories in their podcast. Thus, Psychotic Operas was born. For more information on Black Project Gaming, please visit blackprojectgaming.com. You can also join the Night at the Opera community at r slash night at the opera on Reddit. Now, let's begin. Firewalker by Quintus Cursor. Rule one, kid. They lie when they make the offer. I don't mean in a deliberate sense, not really. I mean, hell, they will if they think they can get away with it, and that you'll be too dumb or naive or gung-ho to notice it. What? Oh, yeah, that includes me. I'm not lying to you about this, though. Call it a guilty conscience. Rule two. They will not tell you everything. I realize that must sound a bit like I'm repeating myself, but this is different. If they've got bad intel, they won't warn you. If they've got garbage intel, they won't tell you. No one knows what they're going up against in the field straight out of the briefing. And, uh, not everyone makes it to the debrief. This leads me to rule three. No one gets to retire. There's a reason the running joke in the ranks is the 9mm retirement plan. I've seen guys a lot harder than you die screaming or crying or... Hell, one guy didn't even see the bullet that got him. You want sad? Imagine a trained shooter lying crumpled on the side of some hill in the middle of bug-fuck nowhere with his rifle still in his hands. Yeah. Not a pretty picture, is it? Sometimes, if you're a very lucky boy or girl or marine... I was kidding. Stop looking at me like that. You get to do what I do. You get to be the one who sends people out to get mauled or killed or who the fuck knows. And believe me, you do not want to know. Won't fault you if you decide to say, fuck it and walk away. Some do. They keep their mouths shut, keep their heads down, go back to their desk jockey jobs and their field work, go to their graves due to old age with that one secret throwing a tantrum in the back of their heads. Yeah, but not you. Oh no. I think I got you pegged. 
You're in this for the long haul, aren't you? Even after the rules. Even after what you saw out there. Am I wrong? Hmm. I didn't think so. It's more than a bad dream, now that I'm sober. By Melonbread. Special Agent Esme Gagnon Parkrainer wades through waist-deep water as a presence rushes toward her. It crawls up inside her body and takes residence, waiting until she's dumb enough to let it out, encouraging her with pain and misfired signals to her involuntary nervous system. She wakes sweating, suffocating, pinned to the bed by the weight of her own gravid belly. She is gone, downstairs or something. He must have removed her sidearm from the end table, afraid of what she might do in the first panicked moments of wakefulness. The baby gives her a little kick, its half-formed mind perhaps lost in a false reality of its own. It's a wonder she got to sleep at all. Barry Erebus Frendenberg is running, screaming, looking for that which has been taken from him. His body is slowly melting because of something he can't see and he can't stop it. He's powerless, his limbs are shattering like glass and it's tearing him apart, face melting and flashing black and white like a seizure. He wakes curled around the axe, the head tucked under his chin pressing into his throat. The leather sheath on the blade didn't slip, this time. He isn't bleeding. His wife is still gone. He slips the cover off the head. It's still the perfect felogen black he remembers, as though it would go anywhere. But what's this? A speck of dust on the other side, a damped spot. He takes it to the first floor bathroom, the one he turned into a workshop, with chemicals. A little M.E.K. will get that clump of hair off it. Lem by D. Landsman, R.N., can't move. They tell him it's so fantastic they were able to catch it in time. Now they can operate, and once they're done, he'll be just fine. It's not right. There's nothing wrong with him. It isn't supposed to be this way. They start cutting, just outside his field of view. There's no pain, but it feels wrong, even through the anesthesia. They take parts out, parts that don't belong to him, but he can't live without. Squirming things, things that look like him. It goes on like this for hours and hours. He wakes up, pinned to the mattress, squinting out of a black eye. He was kicking so hard that Jay had to wrestle him. He caught his face on Jay's hand when he whipped his head forward. Well, that's just fucking great, he dribbles, grinding the heel of his palm into his face in frustration. Like anyone will buy that. I ran into a doorknob, honest. Jay goes to the kitchen to get ice. Dr. Joseph Randolph McCoy is slogging through the mud toward the extract, the bird that will carry him out of the steaming jungles at the waste of the world. There is no moon, and when the shape rushes out of the paddy field at him, he fires. The flash lights up the figure, and this time it's not a man in black pajamas. It's a little girl, books under arm and going home. He tries to yank the gun off target, but the little bullet hose is drawn like a dowser's wand. The stream of tracers punches an eye out the back of her head, and she doesn't fall, just goes on screaming. His sweat stinks of gin and the blanket is wadded and wrapped around his head. The car is still moving under him, and his hands are still zip-tied behind him. Someone in the front seat is talking softly in some kind of code. If anyone replies, he can't hear it. Special Agent in Charge Archimedes Gerard Brabrand, JD, is a doll. A husk of a living thing. All the life sucked out of him and replaced with something else. He doesn't need air, or water, or food, which is good because the world doesn't have any. 
It's a pile of frozen trash, lit blood red and deep purple in the fading starlight. He tries to think of something he misses, about the way things used to be. Someone he wishes would come back. He sits up in his chair before he can think of anything. His headset is slipped slightly, dangling around his neck. The conference call is faintly audible, Deputy Director buzzing on about potential rule-makings and outcomes of federal court decisions. He gets up to drop another Keurig in the coffee machine, taking the wireless headphones and meaningless discussion with him. Somewhere along the way, he closes his eyes and opens them again over that airless waste. Diane Jerry Hellspont is outside the cabin again, the little one in Vermont. It's springtime, and the melting snow is coming down the hills as a little stream that cools her against the soggy blanket of the noon heat. Buried in a hidden place up in those rocks, she's got money, papers, a good pair of boots, a gun if she wants it. But right now there's no need for all that. The sun is warm and the water is cold, and there are green, living things all around her. She looks at the springs of the bunk above her. She turns her head to the drawings on the wall of that same cabin, the one she's pictured all these years, barely visible now in the barred moonlight from the window. She thinks about the sharp piece of metal, wrapped with twine to make a handle, hidden where the screws will never find it. She thinks about the woman sleeping above her, soft throat occasionally making those sleep apnea sounds. She thinks about the words of passage. She goes back to sleep. Agent Matthew Shalimar Gomez is swimming through a city on the sun. He can't remember ever being this happy. He can't remember anything. The superfluous parts of him are burned away, leaving not even the nucleus of the self. There was a little guy once living inside a body somewhere out there. Now he lives here. Forever. He vomits tube worms and seawater on the floor of the morgue. Sergeant Cam Vo is not being slowly dissolved by a house-sized ball of tar in a cold place. His unit has crawled through a blue-lit portal into a world where nobody dies screaming as their marrow is drawn out through their skin. A reward for loyal services rendered to the Empress. He is tilling a field on a hill in a forest with a strange machine. He is shrugging off his coat in a cabin in the snow, warmed by heat that comes on enormous ropes that dangle from poles between the trees. He has two small children and they touch the funny scars on Bo's arms with their little hands, asking where he got them from and where his missing fingers went. He sits down with a mug of the hot, bitter drink they sip in this world, and he tells them scary stories about the place he'll be taken back to when this dream ends. Back to rushing water and lightless caves, and the things even the Shogoths are afraid of. He does not wake. It was him. Or It Was Me By Jake Cook The following missive requires circumference clearance to view. Found scrawled in nearly illegible handwriting among the pages of a copy of Tom Clancy's Without Remorse on the bookshelf of Stanley Flagg, a missing person formerly employed by the United States Marshal Service. It was him or it was me. That's what I told myself. Daniel Thompson, fugitive from the law, lay motionless on the factory floor, a chest full of hollow points. On the other side of the cement vat, I see Gunn, crouched and yelling something. Without thought, I've dropped the magazine and loaded another, the pistol back on target. A revolver with silver grip skids across the floor as I kick it away. I don't think Gunn sees what I see. A whirling, spinning, shimmering like a firework coming from the air around Thompson's hands as he opened his mouth to say something. I didn't wait, not after what I had seen in that parking lot. 
when the demon emerged from his too-wide maw and embroiled the police cruiser, roasting Hicks alive. Gun comes around the corner, the gun still smoking in my hand. What happened, he asks. It was him, or it was me. A few days later, I'm at the bar. Admin leave is killing me. A pasty white guy who looks like he's desperately trying to save what little hair he has tells me he knows what happened. Fuck you, I say, thinking it's some yokel who recognizes me from the news, here to kick me while I'm down. He sits down next to me and tells me the wisest thing anyone has ever said, although I didn't know it yet. Never let the wizard speak. I knew he was right, but I didn't know how he knew that I knew. I down my drink. He gives me a cell phone. I need people like you to stop things like that, he says, mimicking an explosion with his hands and a pah noise from his mouth. I take the phone. I can get you back to work. I can get you whatever you want. He flips open a leather badge holder, revealing a marshal service badge. I'll call you, he says. Just be ready. I am. Years pass. Gunn and I migrate together to our dream jobs at the U.S. Marshal Service. Me, fugitive apprehension, him, that nerd shit. Can find a cell phone in a stadium right down to the section and seat. He tells me where they are, I get them. But, uh, that's my day job. Sometimes I work without gun. More than anything, I want to tell him. But I don't. Something lurks in the truth, and he needs protection, I tell myself. Maybe later. I'm at my other job. The one nobody knows about. I've called in sick three days in a row now, but I've never felt more alive. I draw straws with someone I've never met before today, each of us putting our lives in each other's hands. Now I'm on a hill, rifle propped over a fallen log, scope fixed on a window as a cloud swirl in the midnight overhead. The other guy is crawling on his belly across an open field. A figure appears in a window for only a moment. I freeze. It's Raphael Angelo, wanted across the country for involvement in an abortion clinic bombing outside of Jackson, Mississippi. <laughs> no, that's not right, I think to myself as the figure scans the darkness of the country field. He died of cancer in the clink seven months ago. It was Gunn's team that found him. Wait, I think, already too late. He's opening his mouth and pointing down to... Fuck. Below him, the front door kicks open. A man emerges wearing a balaclava. He sprays the field with some little eastern block subgun, right where the unlucky son of a bitch was crawling. What was his name again? I pull the trigger and the mook falls. I shift my aim up, the crosshair centered on Angelo's head. Angelo opens his mouth, but rather than words or something else exiting, a single 7.62 enters. A second and a half later, and another one hits just chest. Then another, and he tumbles from the window. It's deathly quiet. I wait ten minutes, twenty more, till I'm certain there's nobody else in the house. I move through the field to the house and find Angelo's head wound is pulsing, just like the body in the cave by the lake, repairing itself into something else. I grab him by the heel, dragging him into the house. I spread out the curtains on the downstairs window and set them on fire. I find... Nichols. That was what he told me his name was. Just like mine is Norman. Nichols is no more. The blood pooling under him. Nichols was my team and I had failed him. Along with that mousy brown librarian type making his way to somewhere secure with some fucking book. Bag some real scum. Off the books, the bald man on the phone had told me before we all went on this endeavor. The fire rises and the house is alight the flames dancing to a song only they can hear. I think about throwing Nichols inside, but hold off. He deserves better. I'll bury him deep. Someplace nobody will ever find him. 
How did I get here? I think back to the cement factory. God had gone right. I had gone left. It was him, nor it was me. I think back to drawing straws. It was him, or it was me. Thank you for listening to Psychotic Operas, presented by Black Project Gaming and the Night at the Opera subreddit community. Join us again next time as we present even more stories inspired by the Delta Green role-playing game. If you like what you heard, consider joining the Night at the Opera subreddit at r slash night at the opera. For more Delta Green content, check out Black Project Gaming and the Green Box podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Until then... We'll be seeing you.